0: The following message is by Justin Keller. He's a member at Jefferson Park Baptist Church in Charlottesville. And he's preaching from Malachi chapter three. Enjoy. Well, good morning. So your brothers and sisters at Jefferson Park Baptist send you greetings. So uh, my name's Justin Keller, and I'm a member at JPBC, and uh, have spent the last year and a half serving as the chaplain at the Regent School of Charlottesville, uh, and before that taught at several classical Christian schools and was a pastor for some time before that. So I am very pleased to be able to be here with you this morning. So our text this morning, as we turn again to the scriptures, is in the book of Malachi. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3, begin in verse 13 and go through chapter 4, verse 3. So these chapter and verse numbers, it's helpful to me to remember sometimes that they're not inspired of the Holy Spirit, right? The words are, but not those numbers. Um, And sometimes we need to ignore the chapter numbers in order to hear what God has to say to us. So Malachi chapter 3, verse 13 to chapter 4, verse 3 which I will read for us now. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evil evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to understand this word, that your spirit would be at work through the reading and preaching of the scriptures that our attention might be fixed more firmly on your son and that in trusting in him and in hearing the word about him that your spirit would increasingly conform us to his image that we might serve you and love you and trust you and please you now and all our days so give us ears to hear and eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen. So what do you do when you want two things but you can't have both? What do you do you do when you have competing desires? This is how one moral philosopher reflects on it. He says, I want an iPod and a big screen TV iPods, that's a little dated then, right? So, but I want an iPod and a big screen TV, but I cannot afford both. I want wine with dinner and brandy afterwards, but I want to be sober enough to drive home. I want to eat cookies every afternoon, but I want to be healthy. There's nothing wrong with such conflicts. All that rationality requires is that I must select one desire to be my all things considered desire and act on that. But how do you select that one desire? How do you know what it ought to be? Saint Augustine talks about a a chain of being in which your loves or your desires are rightly ordered. Uh, A prioritization so that you love things in the proper order with the proper emphasis. In other words, we ought not just love the right things, but we we need to love them in the right proportion. And at the top of that ladder, the top of that chain, must be the Lord himself, more than even the good things that life has to offer. There are many things that I ought to love, but there's one thing that I ought to love most. So in the book of Malachi, we read through the book, what we see is that the Israelites have lost this sense of proportion. They've lost the sense of, of having their loves rightly ordered. In fact, they tended to view the Lord as a means to getting what they want. If they did what God wanted, then God would give them what they wanted. And if worshiping and obeying God wasn't getting the job done, then they would neglect and disobey their covenant responsibilities. So that's what we see in Malachi. Let me fill in some more of the background so that we can understand a little bit better how we get to the book of Malachi in the first place. So God had chosen the Israelites to be a people for himself. He'd covenanted with Abraham to make a great nation of them. He'd given them the promised land. But he'd also warned them. I I understand that that in the last couple of years you went through Leviticus, yes? So that's helpful right now, okay? That's helpful, especially the last couple of chapters of Leviticus because God had warned them in Leviticus, but even more so in Deuteronomy, that he would discipline them if they were unfaithful to him. So he'd made them promises, a great people, a great name, a great land. In you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. But if you don't, keep my word, I will discipline you. So he'd warned them of that if they were unfaithful to him. And in the days of the kings of Israel and Judah, he'd given them opportunity after opportunity to repent, to turn towards him. He'd sent prophet after prophet to call them to return. But Israel persisted in disobedience, in worshiping other gods, in loving other things, created things, even good things, more than they loved the Lord. And as a result, eventually the Lord sent them into exile, away from the promised land. But he also had promised that he'd bring them back. He promised to bring them back, and he did. They rebuilt the temple under the leadership of Ezra. They reestablished the teaching of God's word. And under the leadership of Nehemiah, they rebuilt Jerusalem's walls. But now, when we get to the time of the prophet Malachi, now they've started to slide back into those old sinful ways again. They, they're forgetting. We do that, don't we? So we, we've, something happens, we have cause to repent, we, we have a, a moment of clarity, we have a period of time where... And then we begin to forget. Right? This is what the Israelites are doing. They're forgetting they're sliding back into their old sinful ways. And so God sends the prophet Malachi, whose name means my messenger. And Malachi preaches this book and he, it's organized into six arguments or sometimes six disputations is what it's called. So six arguments. In the first, which is in chapter one, verses two to five, God reaffirms his great love for an election of Israel. So whatever else the Lord says to Malachi to say to Israel they need to know that it's grounded in his loving purposes and making covenant with them. So that's the first. The second, which is in chapter 1, verse 6 through 2, 9, the Lord confronts Israel's religious leadership with failing to honor him, chiefly through their defective sacrifices. They'd broken covenant with the Lord, and he would discipline them again if they would not repent. And the third, he confronts their view of marriage and divorce. It's 2, 10 to 16. The, The marriage covenant is meant to mirror the Lord's covenant with his people. The fourth, they'd question God's commitment to justice, 2.17 to 3.5. They failed to acknowledge their own corruption and God's work in refining them. And in the fifth, the Lord contrasts his own unchanging generosity with the miserly fickleness of his people, 3.6 to 12. And that brings us to our text for this morning. In a word, in in a phrase, Israel had forgotten their first love. They'd forgotten. They have forgotten that it is the Lord who made promises to their forefather Abraham, that it's the Lord who called them out of Egypt and gave them his good law through Moses, that it's the Lord who gave them the land through Joshua, who made promises to King David and the prophets about an eternal kingdom. They've forgotten that it's the Lord who took them into exile, and it's the Lord who brought them back. They love the wrong things, and that's the attitude that the Lord seeks to confront through the prophet Malachi in our text today. In a word or in a, a sentence, this passage teaches us this central truth: that we'll see that that God's people must fear the Lord more than they desire earthly gain, for the Lord will know who belongs to Him on the day of His coming. That that God's people must fear the Lord more, more than they desire earthly gain, for the Lord will know who belongs to him on the day of his coming. This text is going to develop in four steps. We're going to see the problem, we're going to see the solution, and then we're going to see two promises. Right. So the problem, the solution, promise number one, promise number two. That's how the text will break down. So let's start with the problem, verses 13 through 15 in chapter 3. Let me read that again for us. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So here's the problem that Israel has. They have this view that only the here and now matters. So the problem is their view that only the here and now matters. So so each of the disputations follows the same pattern. First, there's an assertion by the Lord. Then there's a question from Israel. And then there's a response from the Lord. Does that make sense? Right? So we we have an assertion and then a question and then a response. And we see the same thing here in verses 13 to 15. When it says these hard words in verse 13, that that means that they're strong words. Not in the sense of being brave or necessary, but in the sense of being offensive and insolent. In other words, Israel has spoken hard words. They've been arrogant and rude towards the Lord. Israel is being combative in their attitude. That's how I would understand the question that you see there in verse 13. How have we spoken against you? There's an edge or an attitude to that question as they respond to him. It's not really so much a question as it is a challenge to God. So the Lord patiently explains it in verses 14 and 15, that the Israelites, or at least a significant portion of them, claim that it's vain to serve the Lord. This idea of vanity, it's the idea of it it being pointless or profitless, to serve God. Ironically, it's the same language used in Psalm 127:1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, excuse me, those who build it labor in vain. It's the same idea, only the Israelites have come to a, a different conclusion than the psalmist has. The psalmist sees that without the Lord, our labor is in vain. The, the Israelites during Malachi's time have come to the opposite conclusion. The idea is extended in verse 14 with this question: What is the profit? Profit. That's the language of economics. It's the language of income and of wealth. In other words, the Israelites' their thinking is like this: that keeping God's commandments, that mourning over your sin, that obedience and repentance don't result in greater economic and material well-being. Faithfulness doesn't pay. So, what's the point? That's the conclusion that they've drawn. But if we look at verse 15, they've concluded that there are some other things that do pay off. Arrogance. Breaking God's law for your own advantage. Putting God to the test. In other words, seeing what you can get away with, since God isn't going to do anything anyway. So there are deep flaws in their view of God. We'll press into those later in the text. But the the chief problem that I hope you see here is is that Israel values the wrong things. Their loves are out of order. They value things in a disordered and disproportionate manner. Their chiefmost love is not the Lord himself and all of his splendor and goodness. What they love is what they want the Lord to give them. If holiness doesn't pay, then we'll do something else. That's their attitude what they want the Lord to give them. It's profit and comfort and payouts. Malachi's Israelites are exactly the sorts of folks who would be attracted to prosperity preaching or who would see books with titles such as Your Best Life Now or Reposition Yourself or, this this is a real title, The Holy Spirit, Your Financial Advisor. and turn them into New York Times and Amazon bestsellers. But don't misunderstand or sidestep what's going on here because the temptation for those of us who aren't attracted to that sort of thing would be to say, well, he's not talking to me. He's talking to them. But I don't want to miss what he's saying here because it's not just crass health and wealth teaching that's targeted here. It's any time we treasure something above the Lord, above serving and trusting him. It can be a bigger, obvious thing. When I was 17, it's a long time ago, but when I was 17, I had a buddy. Um, I had just come to Christ. I was 17 when I, when, I, when I was converted. And I had a buddy that I was trying to share the gospel with, and he brushed me off. He brushed me off by telling me that he had been saved a number of times, but had never changed his grades or his love life, so why bother? Pretty obvious there, right? It can be something that is technically sin, but no one calls you on it, like fudging your taxes. It's that time of year, isn't it, right? Or cutting corners on a business deal to save a few bucks. It can be something really small and petty. I had my quiet time, so why can't I find a parking space? It can look incredibly holy, such as serving in the church, but deep down, you're doing it because you want people to think well of you. It it can be deeply human, something with which we we might sympathize. Think of the, the Levite or the pastor who has served faithfully but suffered financially because the people have not been faithful to give. The bitterness that might grow because of that. I've been that pastor a couple of times and have had to, to come to terms with why am I doing what I'm doing. Right? Do you follow this, though? It's not just the crass health and wealth stuff. It's, sin is so sneaky. It's any time, any time that we start valuing the stuff that God does or gives more than we value God. Don't miss the reality that Israel's religious service was defective because it was not centered on God. It was centered on Israel's wants and desires. And all of us are susceptible to such temptations. Material comforts are not wrong. It is not wrong to be thankful for those things. But we need to see that those temporal goods are not ultimate goods. That what you can see and touch can make it easy to forget about the one who is unseeable and immaterial. So we need to ask the Lord, are my loves disordered, even as Israel's were? Do I love what I ought to love? So let's then turn and try to apply Malachi's solution to our problem now, that's in verse 16. Chapter 3, verse 16 again says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. So the solution that Malachi puts forward for us is to fear the Lord. The solution is the fear of the Lord. There's a hard contrast between those who are doing all the talking in verses 14 and 15 and those who are doing the talking in verse 16. Those are two different sets of people, right? Right? In verse 16, you have this godly remnant that remains, even when the rest of Israel is unfaithful. And that's what we see described there. Matthew Henry gives three characteristics of the remnant based upon this verse. He says, first of all, the remnant fears the Lord. that what the Lord thinks and values is much more important to them than what the society around them thinks and values. Second, they thought about what it means to fear the Lord. That's what it means to esteem his name, that they'd made... The connections between placing the Lord above all else and what it looks like to honor him in in their purpose in all of their work. So they were trying to make that connection. And third, they spoke with one another regarding the Lord. And in terms of, of immediate application, that might be the most practical thing of all. They spoke with one another regarding the Lord. Incredibly significant for translating attitudes into actions, faith into obedience. What do you do when it feels like everyone around you is fixed upon comfort and security and possessions, when there's very little encouragement to fear the Lord and seek to serve Him? Maybe Maybe there's very little encouragement that you find in the workplace or at your school or wherever it might be. Well, you find others who think as you do, even if there aren't very many of you. And you meet with one another To speak about it and to pray about it. It's what the Puritans would have called godly conversation or holy conference. So let me stop just for a moment and make a strong recommendation to all of us, right? When you find folks, you're a small congregation, and so this should be something that you'd be able to do as a congregation you find folks in your church or your school or your workplace who fear the Lord, who are part of this remnant Malachi describes, then make it a priority to meet and talk and pray. I worked in in the business world for 10 years before I was a pastor. And it was an incredible gift to be able to find those one or two other people that I worked with who trusted in Christ and who who valued the same things that I valued and to be able to get together with them maybe once a week for lunch so that we could encourage each other and we could pray. Find those folks. Find them. Exchange phone numbers. Have meals together. Introduce your families. A single twig in a stream will just get swept away by the current. But enough twigs can create a dam that can change the flow of the water. We need each other. And note then what the Lord does. He sees and he remembers. A book of remembrance is the record-keeping of an ancient Near Eastern king. We have an example of that in Esther chapter 6 when the king of Persia honors Mordecai. It's a, a metaphor used all over the Old Testament to describe the Lord's love for his people. Psalm 139.16, for example. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Or Daniel 12.1. But at that time your people shall be delivered and everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Revelation in the New Testament chapter 20 verse 12 it's description of the book of life not one believer will be forgotten by the lord but it's more than merely not forgiving this book is a book of remembrance now when the lord remembers I heard it too. There, hey, it came back. I just turned it on and off again, and it's fine. So, well, it is for now. So we'll just keep going. All right. So, when when I have to remember something, it's because I forgot. When God remembers something, it's not because He forgot. It's because it's time to do something. It's time to act. When the Lord remembers, He's not consulting His records because He needs to be reminded. He is the unchanging and perfect God. Rather. When the scripture says that God remembers, it means that the time has come for him to act on behalf of his people. For example, Exodus chapter 2 verse 24, we're told that God heard the cries of his people in slavery in Egypt and he remembered his covenant with Abraham. He had not forgotten. Rather, the time of waiting had passed and the time of deliverance had come. In the very next chapter of Exodus, the Lord calls Moses. So here in Malachi, with this book of remembrance, the Lord does not need reminding. The metaphor is for the sake of his people, to help us understand, to give us assurance that the Lord will act on behalf of those who fear him. Well, how will he act? That takes us into the first promise, verses 17 and 18. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. So the first promise, the one that we see in these verses, is, is that the Lord knows who are his. The Lord knows who are his. The language of verse 17 is about God keeping his covenant promises. To Abraham, the Lord had promised to establish an everlasting covenant with his descendants and had pledged in Genesis seventeen eight, I will be their God. That was a promise repeated to the Israelites in Exodus 6-7. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And to both Jeremiah and Ezekiel, he had promised that one day the nation would be restored and given a new covenant with the Lord, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Jeremiah thirty two thirty six and Ezekiel 36-28. That's what we have here. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. It's God's faithfulness to keep his covenant promises to his people. That term that you see there in the text, treasured possession, that's a single word and it's the same word used in Exodus 19 verses 5 and 6 when he established his covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We have the language of sonship here in Malachi. Israel was the Lord's adopted son. That was the reason that God, gave Moses, uh, gave, that God gave Pharaoh through Moses for liberating his people from slavery in Egypt. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Exodus four twenty-two and 23. It's the language the prophet Hosea picks up on as well. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son Hosea. and it's the language he uses here in Malachi as well. So what is the Lord saying here? He's saying that it's the faithful remnant who will receive the blessings of Abraham, who will be God's treasured possession, who will be called sons of God. Contrary to what many Israelites were saying, it is not pointless to serve the Lord because he knows who are his As it says in verse 18, the Lord does make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. As, as Calvin puts it, when therefore we seem to serve God in vain, let us know that the obedience we render to Him will come to an account and that He is a just judge, though He may not immediately stretch forth His hand to us. But there's more good news here. If we have eyes to read Malachi, Malachi, through the lens of the New Testament. Because the reality is that it's those who obey who are given these promises to be the treasured possession. And none of us, if we're honest, none of us have obeyed God like that. But there is someone who has. There is someone who has fully and perfectly kept God's commands. A son who has fully obeyed his father. Because of his great love for us, God the Father sent God the Son to become one of us. Jesus obeyed when we disobeyed. He died on the cross to bear as a substitute the wrath of God that we deserved. He rose from the dead, victorious over the grave, to give his people a new kind of life so that we can learn to please him. And now for those of us who are in Christ, who trust and belong to him, The words of Exodus 19 have come true. The words that Malachi repeats here have come true. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Do you see what that means? Do you see when we read Malachi through the New Testament what that means? It means that if you are in Christ because he has been faithful that the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ for you. It means that your faithfulness, your sacrifices, your hardships, your obedience, your risk-taking faith, all of that is seen by God and it is not in vain for you are his treasured possession. The Lord knows who are his. So friends, if you have not trusted in Christ, come to him today. Trust him in his obedience, in his death, in his resurrection to make you right with God. Your faith is not in vain. The Lord sees and the Lord knows. Come to Jesus today and then keep coming. But there's a second part to the promises here in Malachi. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. The second promise, the first promise is that the Lord knows who are his. The second is that the faithful will tread upon the wicked. So Malachi is still working with the reality that the Lord discerns between the righteous and the wicked. So if a day is coming when the faithful will be remembered, then it follows that the wicked will be remembered as well. But that day will be a day of judgment for them. These ovens in verse 1 that are described were apparently these beehive-shaped furnaces for working metal which means that they burned thousands of degrees hot. That's the word that is being used here. Anything in them would be consumed. Then Malachi changes the metaphor. Stubble is all that is left after a fire sweeps through a field, and in verse two, root and branch means every last part of the plant, like saying head to toe to refer to a person's entire body, the idea here is the totality of the judgment, the devastation of the destruction that the Lord promises to those who call the arrogant blessed, to evildoers who put God to the test, to those who say that serving the Lord is pointless. In other words, to those who do not serve him faithfully. But as Matthew Henry once again points out, on this day of the Lord that is coming, to the ungodly, the sun is like a furnace that burns them up. But to the godly, to those who fear the Lord. It's the warmth of a sunrise after a long night. That's the image in verse 2. The wings or rays of the rising sun spreading over the land, fingers of sunlight extending forth, bringing warmth and light. Right? You can feel the difference if you get up and are on your way before the sun rises, right? And then the sun begins to rise and the immediate warmth, right? This is the time of year where we begin to pick up on that, right? Anyone who's had to leave for work before dawn on a cold winter morning and felt the warmth of a sunrise gets the imagery here. The righteousness of God will destroy the unrepentant, but for you for who, feel the, who fear the Lord, it will bring This language of healing is used by the prophets, not merely of physical healing, as of a wound, but also to refer to peace and to repentance and wholeness. So Hosea 6.1, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. Or Jeremiah 33.6, Behold, I will bring to Jerusalem health and healing on the day when they are cleansed from the guilt of their sin. So on that day, God's people will leap from the stall like well-fed calves. They will have no predators. They will be at peace from all their enemies because the fire of the Lord's judgment will consume them. Hence the ashes under the soles of their feet in verse 3. The Lord knows who are His. He will not let things go the way they are forever. He will judge the wicked and the faithful, who fear his name will tread upon them, not in triumph, but in the perfect peace that comes from knowing their enemies have been destroyed as they dwell in the presence of the Lord forever. Sometimes, when the faithful suffer, there's justice in the here and now, and we get to experience that, to enjoy it. Years ago, again, back when I was in the business world, one of my managers had made unrealistic promises to a client. He started putting tremendous pressure on us to get results so that he wouldn't look bad. It happened that the client was in Japan, which meant that I was already working a flipped day. Pretty miserable. Manager even started making threats. Well, we got the project done. And then he was fired. Somebody was paying attention. Sometimes it works out the way it's supposed to. Somebody sees what's really going on. But not all the time, right? Not all the time. Sometimes it seems like no one sees. It can be tempting to start wondering why you bother trying to do the right thing. I can think of another workplace a Christian workplace this time with a different manager. There was some workplace corruption that was uncovered, and in that situation, good people lost their jobs, and there was nothing to be done for it. And it's tempting in those moments to think no one sees. It doesn't have to be in the workplace, right? It could be a a conflict with a neighbor. It can be something at the, the local level politically. It could be even in churches, right? I pray not here. It can be tempting to think that no one sees, but the reality that Malachi points us to is that someone does see what's really going on. Someone does. The Lord knows who are his, and it is never in vain to fear the Lord, to work as though in his presence. And on the day when Jesus Christ comes a second time, when the Son of Righteousness arises, the sun will consume the wicked like stubble, but for those who serve the Lord, that same Son will rise with healing. So trust in Jesus Christ today, even now, for he knows who belongs to him. Keep your loves ordered. Fear the Lord. He will come. Let's pray. Father, grant us this grace that we would trust your word, that we would believe what you have said, that even in times of darkness, when we don't see how you're at work, we would love what we ought to love and hate what we ought to hate. And above all else, that we would love and trust you. And we ask this in the name of Jesus and for the sake of his gospel.